This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and as you can probably guess, we'll all be talking about Brexit. It has happened. The UK has voted to leave the European Union and all hell has broken loose. To try and discuss and dissect one of the most momentous events in post-war British politics, I'm delighted to be joined by Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign affairs commentator, political columnist Janan Ganesh, business editor Sarah Gordon and economics editor Chris Giles. Thank you all for joining on this very busy day. So, in the early hours of Thursday the 24th of June 2016, it was announced that the British electorate had voted to leave the EU. 52% voted for Brexit, 48% for Remain, all on a rather high turnout of 72%. And the repercussions have already been huge. David Cameron has resigned as Prime Minister just one year after winning a general election. He'll exit Downing Street by the autumn. Jeremy Corbyn is also facing a leadership challenge from MPs. Nicola Sturgeon is paving the way for another Scottish independence referendum. And George Osborne is also likely to be out of a job very soon. That's before we reach the markets, the pound and business reaction and we're just hours in. So Gideon, I'm going to begin with you that nobody predicted this was going to happen. The polls got it wrong. The bookies got it wrong. Dare I say it, the commentariat got it wrong as well. What do you think has happened? I have to say, I wrote a column in February saying, <laughs> wake up, we're heading for Brexit. So, And I think that if you spoke, the reason I wrote that was that I, if I spoke to MPs I knew who had seats outside London, they were very, very negative. They would say, look, you know, whatever the polls say, I barely meet people. These were Remain people barely meet voters who are going to vote for Remain. And so the polls and people's experiences were not matching up. What happened? Gosh, you know, historians will be poring over this. You know, my grandchildren will be writing history essays on what happened. But I think it was a number of things. I think that Britain's never been, had an entirely comfortable relationship with the EU. The EU has, as the Leave people said, it has changed in nature since the UK joined in the 70s. It's become more of a political union. That question about whether we're comfortable with that has been building up. Then you had the financial crisis, the Iraq war, which undermined faith in elites. And I think that there was much more anti-elite sentiment out there in the country than David Cameron and others had reckoned on. And it's found expression in this Brexit referendum. And one of the key things that you wrote that said could lead to Brexit is immigration. And we'll pull that apart. But that does seem to have been a driving force. And all these warnings about the economy don't seem to have worried voters that much. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that immigration gave the Leave campaign the issue they needed, both to motivate people simply because people were worried about it as an issue in itself. There, there has been over a million people have moved from Eastern Europe, much higher numbers than were anticipated when the Eastern European countries joined the EU in 2005. 
and that clearly caused some discontent. It was also a very vivid demonstration of what this rather abstract phrase, loss of sovereignty, means, because Leave voters would say, well, look, we think there are kind of too many people here. Can you, can you put a stop to it? And Cameron had to say, well, actually, no, I can't because of EU rules or free movement of people. And I think that was incredibly damaging to him throughout the uh, campaign. And I think if, in retrospect, we look back at the renegotiation and could anything have been different, I think if the European leaders had given Cameron an emergency break on free movement of people to be employed when there were very high surges, that could have seen him through, but he never got it. So, Janan, there's a lot of political angles here, but obviously David Cam is now joining a long list of Tory leaders who have been destroyed by Europe. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, to a certain extent. Why did we not think he was go- Europe was going to be the Achilles heel of him? Why did we think he was going to survive this issue, which has once again split the Tory party? I think it was because when he took over the party in 2005, his project was to make an ailing, unelectable party competitive again and therefore the the membership and the MPs were willing to put the Europe issue aside for a while but even then there were some clues I mean he, he won the leadership in 2005 by promising to take the Tories out of the EPP the caucus in the European Parliament which was a huge concession when you think about it to Eurosceptic elements in his own party so even then when he was more explicitly a so-called modernizing leader there were Eurosceptic gestures and the, the criticism I really have of him now, in retrospect, is that when you pressure him, he capitulates. And there was a pattern of that behaviour over the past 10 years. And it meant that when he was really pushed in 2012-13 for a referendum, he had nowhere to go. He'd already established a precedent that if you give me a hard enough time, I will give you what you want. And that was the Bloomberg speech in January 2013, the referendum that he called in the assumption, and it was my assumption as well, wrongly, that he would easily win it. And it turned out to be the miscalculation for which he'll be remembered to the exclusion of everything else. We've often said that he's the essay crisis prime minister, the lucky prime minister, and his luck has finally run out because, as you said, this is all he's going to be remembered for. He will be remembered, forget everything else, as the PM who took us out of Europe. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the historic analogy, you know, the last prime minister to leave in such ignominious circumstances. And I imagine it's Anthony Eden in 1956 over Suez because even Tony Blair won a third general election after Iraq. And he left at a time relatively of his own choosing, pressured out by Gordon Brown, but could choose the sort of uh, the exact timing of it. David Cameron's in a much more difficult position with the historians. He tried today in his resignation speech to talk about some of his achievements. Nobody's listening. No one will remember. I mean, and they are significant achievements. I mean, he formed a coalition government when this country absolutely needed a government in the summer of 2010. And he made the Tories re-electable again. And he did gay marriage and lots of public service reforms domestically. None of that matters. If you call a referendum on a question of national destiny, you take one side, you lose. No one will remember anything else about you. So, Sarah Gordon, when we last talked about the day after Brexit, one of the things that you said is there's a lot of companies not ready for this. And you've also written in recent days about the split in various FTSE companies about how they feel about the referendum. Do you think there's a sense that businesses are now having a buyer's remorse? They felt they should have done more for this referendum. And what has the reaction been? There's been reports of jobs moving and warnings and all the rest of it. A lot of it seems to be a bit of rumour-mongering at the moment. Yes, I think the reports of Morgan Stanley moving jobs are just that, rumours. What's interesting is that I think business will not be engaging in recriminations today about what they did or didn't do during the referendum 
campaign because, frankly, they have quite enough to worry about with markets plunging, the pound falling, and an extremely uncertain future, which in many ways David Cameron has made even more uncertain by not triggering Article 50 to start negotiations for exiting the EU, as indeed he had promised to do immediately, and resigning, which of course he had promised not to do. And for business, what that means is actually an extension of uncertainty. It means that over the summer, the Conservatives are going to be entirely engaged in what looks like a bitter leadership campaign. There will be no responsiveness within government or probably even within the civil service to the kind of needs that business will want to start articulating as quickly as possible. Because I think one of the things that is interesting about the uncertainty question is that, you know, when we talked about this before, you said if we have the referendum, we have certainty because we now know we're going to leave. But there's so much about the future that business must be wondering, are we going to be in the single market? Are we not going to be in the single market? And then also what happens to the pound as well and all those kind of things, you know, at which point do things begin to stabilise or is that really not until Article 50 is hit, do you think? Well, I mean, let us not forget that many, many businesses voted to leave. I mean, as we've been saying for many, many months, there is no monolithic voice in the business community. Even among the biggest listed businesses, as you were saying, there are divisions of opinion on the board. I don't think that certainty or stability in business planning and investment and hiring is going to come back in the near future at all. Even once you trigger Article 50, of course, that only means another two years where negotiations will be underway. If you are an exporter or if you are an employer of non-UK EU nationals, you are in an extremely precarious position today. Chris Charles, you again wrote a very good piece in the free FT. It's available on the streets of London for anyone on Facebook who's watching that as we're recording it on Friday. But you have said the economist position has been united. Brexit will be a bad thing. It's now happened. How bad is it really? You know, what have we seen from the markets, the pound today and the general reaction from the IMF and around the world? Well, I think if you look at what we were expecting, I don't think most people weren't expecting Brexit. So the initial market reaction was, I think, much, much worse than people thought. Equity markets down 7 or 8%. Pound hit a 30-year low against the dollar. It wasn't just UK assets. It was much more. In fact, the contagion was much more widespread across Europe. So deeper stock market falls in other Eurozone countries, not in the UK. Banks down initially about 35%. If you compare it with lunchtime today, things look a little bit better. So a lot of these things have come back a bit. Does this mean that we can then say, oh, well, it was just a morning squall? No, we can't, because the big issue is this is day one. And what Sarah was talking about is the uncertainty. What really matters for economics is whether businesses and households start to think, is this a good time to make a big spending decision? And I think we know the answer to that. It's not a good time. We don't even know what the UK is going to be like in a few months or years time but with the Scottish question and the Northern Irish question we don't have a plan for how we're going to leave the EU we don't really have a government and we do have a winning side of the referendum that is already sort of starting to unravel slightly in the things it was promising like the 350 million suddenly realizing that actually that didn't in fact exist as we all knew it didn't at the time so that is the big question is 
what happens and whether the authorities can address it. They can address the market instability, I think. They're going to have more trouble with the fact that people might be unwilling to spend money and that's what's damaging. We've had some reassuring words from Mark Carney and the ECB and the IMF saying they're all there to stand by us at this at this hour of need at the moment. Um, you know, is there any sort of concern there, any kind of runs on the banks or anything that, of possibility? The big concerns always the things that you don't really think about. So it's often where, let's say you had in America a shortage of yen or in the UK a shortage of another foreign currency. So these currency swaps are really important so that you don't get those things going. So, but my initial thought is that we aren't going to see that sort of cascading financial crisis. So then the real question is, whether people stop spending. And that's the big question. We won't know the answer to that for a few days, well, more than a few days, for a few weeks or months. So, Gideon, going back to the international reactionists, I think probably the most interesting thing is other European leaders, because they are going to want to set an example of Britain. They're going to want to stop the idea that, you know, it's going to be 28, going to 27, and could go even lower than that. Other countries are already talking about their own referendums. Um, what have we seen so far from Brussels and from those key players? And what has it signalled about that deal that's going to be the big question for the next few months and years in British politics? Well, look, I think even with the best will in the world, it would be extremely difficult to to set up a new deal between Britain and the rest of the EU because disentangling the treaties, deciding where everybody's interest lies is hard. But we won't even have the best will in the world because one of the reasons we're voting to leave is the EU is in a kind of rolling crisis. They've had the euro crisis, they've had the migrant crisis. And as a result, the EU that we're negotiating with is a place that is not in the sort of confident, outward-going, sort of fine, we'll be generous with you mood. It's fighting for its survival. And a lot of the governments are fighting for their survival. And the people they're fighting against are, by and large, Eurosceptic, anti-EU forces that they do not want to encourage by suggesting that it's fine for the UK to leave the EU and, in fact, a good future out there. And so I think it's going to be a very, very difficult negotiation. I don't even know when it's going to get started, because if we don't trigger Article 50, I think we're going to very quickly come under pressure and say, come on, guys, get serious, do it. You then have to take into account the fact that the new prime minister, almost certainly new chancellor, will be composed from the Leave campaign. So people like Boris Johnson, conceivably Michael Gove, and they have just won a referendum explicitly on a prospectus to reduce immigration massively which means that the deal they do with Europe in terms of extricating Britain has to involve some erosion of free movement. Now, you can't do that while you're in the single market, so you can't really do a Norway or a Switzerland, countries which observe free movement. They have to invent a new model of membership or a semi-membership, which allows Britain to control its borders, but doesn't do so much economic damage that you annoy voters that way. What they absolutely can't do is deliver from Brussels a new form of membership which leaves freedom of movement inviolate because they only won that referendum last night on the issue of migration. They did not win it on economic concerns. I think that's the big question, isn't it? That, uh, you know, the easiest thing would be to say, well, we would join the EEA. Now we voted to leave and we would have a deal like Norway, but all the current members have freedom of movement of people. You know, how likely do we think that that's a possibility we could get an exemption from that? Is that at all a possibility, does anyone think? Not under current circumstances. Look, if I were the, you know, hoping for the best, which I guess as a British citizen I have to, you would think that because of this crisis within Europe that I've described, things are not stable there. There are forces that are very concerned about migration, etc., that may 
eventually moved towards a kind of British position saying, you know, actually, perhaps we should have some breaks on free movement of people. I think the difficulty is that a lot of those forces within the EU are not particularly attractive. I mean, they're, they're a lot less cuddly even than Nigel Farage. These are real hard far-right forces that I think their own countries are very scared of. So do we want to kind of start forming an alliance with the alternative for Deutschland? Well, I mean, if of course, if there's any erosion of free movement of labour, that's one of the most direct ways through which UK business and particularly the city would be affected. Although, of course, it's important to remember that it's not just French and Italian bankers working in the city that matter. It's migrant workers picking strawberries in rural Kent. Nevertheless, that is one of the main ways through which the city will be affected, as well, of course, as the potential loss of passporting, which allows UK-based firms to do business freely with the rest of the European Union. Yeah. And Chris, looking at Janan mentioned there that George Osborne's position might be untenable, it looks like he's got to go. The fact that David Cameron is going, the chairman of the Conservative Party, Andrew Feldman is going. We don't really have a functioning government, I'd say, at the moment. And uh, George Osborne has said on Twitter, you know, that he will be there to serve whatever the will of the British people. But he's a busted flush now, right? Completely. I don't think there's a hope in hell he's got been chancellor by Christmas. In fact, the first day we have a new prime minister, if not before, he'll be out of the Treasury and almost certainly out of the Cabinet because he's said that leaving the EU is economically illiterate. You simply can't have a Chancellor who thinks that and has also remained a chance of running a policy that he's said is economically illiterate. Could I just say there's actually a wider problem with the British civil service because I know a lot of the foreign office people and so on. I haven't met one who thinks Brexit is a good idea, and yet they're going to be the people charged with this massively complex negotiation, which they don't believe in. But Janan Ganesh, you're obviously George Osborne's biographer as well. This is, again, you know, it's a remarkable fall for David Cameron, but he is a man who, you know, we thought even quite recently could be a future prime minister, and it seems like his career's come to a crashing end as well. Yeah, I mean, he's gone through these very volatile swings uh, throughout his career, you know, in his initial reaction to the crash was really unimpressive and people said he should be moved. Then uh, he was more impressive towards the election in 2010. Then he crashed down again with the Omni Shambles budget in 2012. Then he's played a big part in winning a majority this time last year. But this dip is not just a normal cyclical dip in Osborne's career. It's completely unrecoverable. I think the Eurosceptics will say, look, do what you want until Cameron goes. But both of you are going which means I have to fill the two biggest jobs in the land and conceivably the third biggest job in the land because there are questions over whether Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, will choose to stay in office, given some of the things that have been said about him by the Leave campaign. Yeah, no, a lot. We've seen the Treasury Select Committee hearings, Chris, which I know that you've watched, that the US skeptics have been very rude about Mr Carney and they felt he'd not been impartial. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but it's hard to see how he'd want to work with the new US skeptic chancellor. Well, I was actually talking to some people in the bank this afternoon and their view day one is that he's a big man and he will lump it. I don't know how long he'll lump it, but that's the view, the the immediate view. But the people in the bank don't think he did anything wrong. He was completely impartial. He was fulfilling his mandate. And they're very hurt by things like there's a video on the Vote Leave website which essentially says that Mark Carney... Uh, wasn't acting for himself. He was acting to try and essentially embezzle money off the British taxpayer to give to Goldman Sachs. It's quite an extraordinary video. 
Sarah, this is a problem that we're going to face, that Mark Carney is a very respected figure in the city, but not in Westminster anymore. And we're seeing this sort of big fundamental shift now in how British politics works. And that trust level and that connection is going to be quite hard to rebuild now that sort of the whole leadership of the Conservative Party is just going to disappear. Yes. And I mean, there are lessons for the establishment in all its forms, aren't there? I mean, there's a lesson for business which attempted to get out a very strong warning about the consequences of Brexit, which was entirely unlistened to clearly by large swathes of the population. Indeed, support for Remain actually fell over the campaign. So it appears to have had a negative effect. And I think in part that obviously reflects the longer term consequences of the financial crisis, which so undermined trust in big business and indeed in institutions like the Bank of England. And that, of course, is a longer term challenge for us. Because there was that polling during the campaign which asked people, do you trust, distrust the people? And I think the only universally trusted man was um, Martin Lewis, the money saving expert. Who supported Remain. Indeed, maybe they should have made more of him but I think that was extraordinary you know the people from the Bank of England had huge distrust ratings and you'd think why you know I don't really have strong views about people from the Bank of England but Leave voters really did. Well obviously I mean the answer to that is complex but I mean one point I think is worth highlighting which is precisely that the ability to link what is happening in business and at the macroeconomic level to what is going on in people's daily lives I think that business and indeed as you suggest much of the commentariat talked down to people at least that's what yeah. voters felt very very strongly they felt they were being told of the drastically negative consequences of a Brexit as if they should believe it without actually being talked through the impacts um, on their daily lives now one can argue about how perhaps the Remain campaign could have done that more effectively, but that was a very strong emotion. Well, I'd, I'd actually sort of disagree with that. I'm not, I'm not sure that I think both sides essentially talked down, but the Leave campaign was just fantastically more effective at it with a much, much worse message, which we know is actually just simply factually incorrect. But the, you know, t take control, project fear, these slogans, that they cut through in the way that Remain slogans simply didn't. Yes, I wasn't suggesting that the Leave campaign didn't talk down or indeed lie to the electorate, which it very obviously did. Talking that, this is a question obviously with your foreign affairs, Hank Gideon, because when looking at the prospect again of another Scottish independence referendum that incredibly quickly out of the doors this morning, Nicola Sturgeon appeared with two flags. One was the Scotland flag and the other one was the EU flag, which, yeah, which tells you exactly what her intentions are. And she said, you know, it would be democratically unacceptable, I think the phrase was, for Scotland has voted to in and England has essentially, minus London, has voted out. Do you think Scotland's going to go independent? I think it's obviously a much, much stronger chance now than it was 24 hours ago. I think that the Scots will rightly feel very annoyed because they, they voted strongly to stay inside the EU. And that may give them the emotional push to and the sort of practical push to have a second referendum and this time to really go for it. There are many uh, steps to go. I mean, I think in a funny way, being an independent Scotland, if England has left the EU and you're in it, is even more complicated because, you know, what do you do about the currency? Do you have to have a hard border with England? All of that. But I wouldn't bet that those practical considerations will necessarily overwhelm the kind of revulsion that I think many Scots will feel towards the United Kingdom. Now, the other person who's in trouble at the moment, as well as the United Kingdom, um, Janan, is Jeremy Corbyn that we've seen at the beginning of the long-rumoured coup against him that seems to have begun this afternoon that Margaret Hodge um, has tabled a motion of no confidence in the Labour leader and folks' neighbours saying they think they've got the numbers. They think 
that they can get this through and that by this time next week they're saying you know John McDonnell, Angela Rigo or Dan Jarvis could be Labour leader. Do you think they'll succeed? I think they've got a, at least Evans chance of succeeding. The moderates in the Labour Party always envisaged the aftermath of the referendum as a good time to move against Jeremy Corbyn. They envisaged, of course, moving against him, having won the referendum. And they've got uh, a doubly good motive to do it, given that they've lost and he is seen as being culpable for being such an indifferent campaigner over recent weeks. So I think they've got a casus belli to go after him. They've got the numbers to do it. Have they got a candidate which they're all behind and I think they they haven't quite got that and the danger is that they split their resources the moderates between two or three people Dan Jarvis and Angela Eagle being the two most prominently mentioned at the moment there is of course a chance that you get rid of Jeremy Corbyn and you do end up with the one guy who is more (laughs) left-wing which is John McDonnell and he's more left-wing and technically better as a political performer much more professional with a much better staff and a, a better media manner and that is a very interesting state of affairs for British politics because you'll have a very divided and stressed Conservative Party, a very, very left-wing Labour Party under someone who actually might be good enough to land blows on the government. And what that augurs for the next election is uh, it's hard to predict. And finally, if we think British politics sounds in a nice, healthy state, we can always look across the Atlantic, Gideon, can't we? And we've got a very nice fellow on our shores at the moment, which is Donald Trump, who's visited Scotland to look after some of his golf courses. And he said they thought the British news was fantastic. This was a great thing. What does this mean for sort of the special relationship and the whole rest of the world? Look, many, many things. But look, it did occur to me that if Donald Trump is elected as the US president, in some ways, you could argue that, well, that's part of the whole same anti-establishment populist feeling that seems to be sweeping the West as kind of perhaps a backlash against globalisation. On the other hand, I think it would make Britain feel incredibly lonely in the world because there is no constituency for Donald Trump, even amongst the Leavers. I mean, Boris Johnson said he would avoid going to New York lest he met Donald Trump. I think Trump. Nigel Farage likes him. Nigel Farage may like him, but I don't think he's likely to be a popular figure in the UK. So I think we'd suddenly say, find that we have left the EU and our closest ally had appeared to have gone crazy. And where do we stand in the world then? Well, that's it for this episode of FT Politics. It's such a rapidly moving story and there's so much more about it we didn't get to cover today. I'd advise you to go straight to our website at ft.com forward slash Brexit where you can read more about it. And we'll be back next week with another instalment. God knows what British politics and everything will look like there. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's currencies correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.